I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very interested in speaking with today, Ian S. Lustick, author of Paradigm Lost, From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. And I believe there's a new edition, uh, a, a new language edition of the book that has come out. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. But how are you doing today, uh, Ian? I'm doing fine. Uh, the book came out at the end of 2019, uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania Press. And there's a website for it, uh, paradigmlostbook.com, where there's an ongoing conversation and resources having to do with the topic. But you're right, a Hebrew uh, version of the book, a translation came out earlier this year, was reviewed in Haaretz quite prominently, uh, and has a new uh, uh, preface that updates it a bit uh, over the two years. So if you could, and I, I know this is uh, a really basic sort of question, but I think some people, when we talk about Israel-Palestine, um, you know, th they need to sort of be informed as to uh, maybe a few of the, the terms we're using. And I think the big one here is, is of course, uh, the two-state solution, which for uh, people that may not know is uh, basically this idea that you could divide uh, the, the territories up, uh, some for the Palestinians, some for the Israelis. And uh, we're going to get into that. But what is the history, I guess, behind uh, the two-state solution concept? Well, there is a lot of it. Uh, but I will try to be very brief about this, giving you the historical context for the idea. When Zionism brought the idea of, uh, of a Jewish state to Pal Palestine or some land that Jews would basically control, whether you called it a Jewish state or not, uh, they didn't have the idea of dividing the land. In fact, they didn't have the idea of any solution with the Arabs. The Arabs were kind of not to be part of the solution for the Jews, and they weren't really uh, prominent in Zionist thinking. Uh, from the Arabs' point of view, and of course, a majority, the vast majority of the population was was Arab, Palestinian. Uh, for example, at the end of the 19th century, maybe there were 50,000, 75,000 Jews in Palestine, a half a million, 600, 700,000 uh, Palestinian Arabs. And uh, from their point of view, the idea that Palestine should be a Jewish state or a state for the Jews seemed absurd. So both sides saw the future of the country as one state, theirs. Uh, by the middle of the British mandate, the British ruled Palestine from after World War I to 1948. And it... Uh, they allowed hundreds of thousands of Jews being persecuted in Europe and, to move into Palestine and establish themselves so strongly 
that the Jews really felt if they couldn't take over the whole country, they could take a lot of it. And the Arabs started to be afraid that they were really going to lose the country, not only to British imperialism, but to the Jews. Uh, moderates, let's say, on both sides started wondering, including the British, that dividing the country into two states might be the solution. It was called partition. That was broached formally in 1937 when a commission the British set up called the Peel Commission to try to figure out what to do with what the British felt was a silly problem, a terrible problem between these two primitive peoples, the Jews and the Arabs, when really the British helped create the problem. Uh, the Peel Commission said this was an irrepressible conflict, even though two-thirds of the population was Arab and one-third was Jewish. He couldn't figure out a way other than dividing the country. And then the question meant, the question was, along what lines? Uh, now, the Jewish side that was a minority and it was afraid it was going to disappear entirely if, if Britain turned on it, was ready to formally accept the idea of partition, though it didn't like it and didn't really, and did it mainly for tactical reasons. Uh, the Arab side, there were very few, if any, Arabs who were willing to agree to give part of the country to the Jews. They were willing to accept Jews living there under a Palestinian state. In 1947, however, after World War II, after even more Jews came to the country, the UN, uh, the British turned the, turned the issue over to the UN, and the UN said, uh, let's go back to the Peel Commission idea, divide the country in a Jewish and Arab state, but divide it in a way that it's so awkward that the two countries will have to cooperate with one another. So the borders were intertwined with one another. Well, there were some Arabs ready to accept this idea. Again, the Jews accepted it mainly because they thought it would be an excellent base for building what they really wanted was a bigger state, even though many of them didn't think, uh, some of them didn't think they could really get the whole country. The, when the war started, and it started for a multi of different reasons, which we don't have to go into now, but it be quickly became apparent that there would not be a Palestinian state. The Arab states didn't want it to exist. The Jewish leadership, the Zionist leadership, did not want a Palestinian state to exist. And by the time Palestinian elites came and presented themselves, uh, at the peace negotiations, say, okay, where's our state? The only territory that hadn't been conquered by Israel that was still in Palestine was held by Jordan and Egypt. Jordan held the West Bank, and it said, no, we're keeping this as part of the uh, Hashemite kingdom. And the Egyptians uh, allowed a kind of phony Palestinian provisional government to exist in the Gaza Strip for a short time. But that was the end of their being... Uh, Partition. However, the so the idea kind of disappeared, in which there was a state of Israel, and then in Palestine was a part of it occupied by Jordan and a part occupied by Egypt. Then in 1967 there was another war. Many Israelis saw the war as a, an attempt by the Arabs to destroy them, but other Israelis saw it as an opportunity to do what they'd wanted to do all the time all along, which was to get Zionist rule, Jewish rule over the whole country. The war ended with the Arab states defeated, uh, and the Palestinians, 250,000 more Palestinians fled the fighting, adding to an enormous refugee population. And in the flush of victory, many Israelis started to see the West Bank and Gaza as part of their country. Now they were ruling it. However, many other Israelis didn't like the idea because they didn't want so many Arabs in the in the state. It wouldn't be a Jewish state, after all, or it wouldn't be democratic. As the saying goes, what used to say, Israel can be two of the following three things, but it can't be all three. It can be big and include the West Bank in Gaza. It can be small without Gaza. You, you cut out it there for a second. You said... Um... It, it, Israel used to say Israel can be two of the three things. It can be of big, democratic, or Jewish. It could be Jewish and democratic, but it'd have to stay small and get out of the West Bank and Gaza. It could be Jewish and big, but it wouldn't be democratic. Or it could be big and democratic, but it wouldn't be a Jewish state anymore. It would be a state for all its citizens. So that opened up the idea of maybe going back to partition. And amazingly, Palestinians, even the PLO, 
in the West Bank first, and then elsewhere started to agree that, it, that a historic compromise was necessary if Palestinians were ever to have a country. So by the 1970s, there was serious discussion on both sides about returning to the two-state solution, have partition. What my book is about, and I was part of the research on that. I was part of the movement to celebrate it, to encourage people to think about it. It was almost uh, very, it was illegal for Israelis to talk to the PLO about that until uh, the, the 1980s uh, or even later than that. But after fighting for that idea for decades from, I, would, I started in the early 70s, in the uh, about 2010 or so, I started to realize that it was never going to happen and that it was that actually it had become a one state reality. Israel was big, uh, uh, but it was not democratic. It was Jewish in the sense that the Jews controlled a big country, but it wasn't democratic. That's the reality we're in. So. I've been a part of a generation that struggled with, is there a one-state solution, a two-state solution, cantons? And what I've came out with, and the reason the book attracted a lot of attention, it doesn't, all these images of a pretty picture of the future are irrelevant. What's relevant is that there's a reality, a one-state reality. That's, it's not a solution, but it's a reality. And that, we have to think about how that, how one state that are not democratic, but include mass populations that don't that want political rights, how they evolve over time. And that's a shock. That's a tremendous shock to almost everybody, whether they wanted to keep the uh, in Israel, whether they wanted to keep all the territories, shocked to think now they have to actually contend with half the population that is not Jewish. And it's a shock to those who always wanted to give up the West Bank and Gaza because they've been terrified of having to live with those, they've been saying the reason to get out of the territory is not to have to live with the Arabs. So it's a paradigm lost. And the play on words is that for many Israelis, it's been a kind of paradise to have to say, well, someday we'll have a two-state solution, but meanwhile, we get to control everything. So as long as it, they thought it was possible to have a two-state solution, they were kind of in a paradigm that was almost a paradise. But now both of those have been lost and they are stuck having to face the reality of a one of one state. And my job has been to see that there's promise in that one state reality. It's, it's much more promise than struggling against the impossibility of actually negotiating a two state solution. If we could, uh, before we get into the reasons why this has become uh, a one state reality, as you put it, uh, could you talk a little bit about. Um, maybe how you went from uh, believing in a two-state solution to accepting the sort of one-state reality and, and maybe uh, just how, how your views came to change over time. Yes, I will. That is a long and autobiographical story. But for your audience, if you want, if they don't understand something I'm saying or would like more information, there's a a, a detailed video interview with me about that uh, that comes out of the Institute of International Studies at Berkeley, Conversations on, his, on History. So if you Google that, Conversations on History Lustig, you'll get like an hour answer to that question. Now I'll give you a, a, a couple minutes. So when I first went to Israel uh, in 1969, and I wrote my first uh, published article as an undergraduate on what West Bank Arabs really want, and I was stunned to find I didn't really know much about the uh, origins of the Palestinian refugee question. And I found that uh, there were all these Palestinians who had a really valid demand for justice, if not return to where they came from, at least to have a country of their own. And from my point of view, Zionism was, this, was legitimate as a demand that Jews should be able to live in the land of Israel securely and in a large population but not necessarily to rule over others. So the way to do that, I thought, would be when there were a few people, both Palestinians I met and Israelis, who were talking about a two-state solution. And I started advocating that in 1969. 
And I, in 1971, when I went to graduate school uh, in Berkeley, I formed an organization called Yesh Brera. In Hebrew, there's a slogan, Ein Brera, that means that we have no alternative. We have to fight. There's no alternative. There's no partner. There's no way out but to fight. So my, the group I formed called Yesh Brera, there is an alternative, was we can have a non-belligerent Palestinian state in, in the West Bank and Gaza, we have to stop the settlements. And this was a petition that we circulated worldwide at a time when there were only 1,100 settlers in the West Bank. If you can believe it, there are now 700,000 over the green line, over the old armistice line. But And people made fun of me. Some people called us Nazis or anti-Semites because we wanted a two-state solution. And, we, and even people on the left in Israel thought that we were silly to worry about 1,100 settlers. But we said that this would eventually become a population that would lock Israel into a political dungeon from which it would never escape. And at that time, I still had in my mind the idea of a cozy little Jewish state inside the Green Line, the Armistice Lines from 1949, that didn't have serious problems of democracy within it. I later learned, because I wrote my dissertation in my first book on Arab citizens of Israel, that even inside the supposedly cozy small Jewish state, there were real serious problems of oppression of a minority that was at that time about 15 percent. It's now about 20 percent. But that's where I was. And our group was ignored by the Golda Meir government. But some Arabs in the West Bank and many some left-wing journalists, including some that became well-known, like Shulamit Aloni, wrote articles about us, said we weren't silly, that it was the future. Uh, so you can see that in the early seven, but we had 450 uh, signatures from all over the world. We, we actually started something. However, from the in the late 70s, Menachem Begin, who came from a part of the Zionist movement that put the highest priority on ruling all the land of Israel. They were expansionists. They came to power and for the first in the first four years dedicated every resource they had to putting as many settlements in the West Bank and Gaza in places that would make it politically impossible for future governments to compromise. So starting in the early 80s, I became interested in the question of what was called the point of no return. What would happen if there were so many settlers or Israel became so hawkish that it wouldn't be possible to leave anymore? I became so interested in this. I went to work in the State Department in the late 79, 80 during the, uh, during the Carter administration. And I was involved in the autonomy negotiations, actually as, a, as an expert on them, over how to apply the Camp David Accords when the, uh, to the West Bank and Gaza when Menachem Begin was prime minister. And I began to see this was this very difficult, if not impossible. But I never wanted to say it was impossible like some of my colleagues at that time because I had studied and was interested in Algeria and Ireland because Britain had ruled Ireland for hundreds of years and the French had ruled Algeria for hundreds of years as part of their countries, and eventually had withdrawn from all of Algeria, and in British case, most of Ireland, and created independent states there. So I wrote a couple books on the topic of what can we learn from when democracies settle areas that they can't digest? What do we learn from them? And I learned in 1993 that it was possible to withdraw was possible to reach two-state solutions under uh, as a result of state contraction, but that it was extremely difficult and the states would have to go through terrible crises like de Gaulle went through, like France went through, the overthrow of the Fourth Republic, the crises that Britain backed away from when Churchill wanted to crack down on the Protestants in Ulster to avoid a civil war in Britain over Ireland. That's why Britain is still in Northern Ireland. So I warned in 1993 in my book that there would be, that the only way to get peace was to negotiate secretly with the PLO and quickly implement a two-state solution. And I predicted that the Labour Party would do that. They would secretly negotiate with the PLO, but that there would then be assassination attempts on Israeli leaders 
and that the Shin Bet and the Israeli secret police should start to focus on his Jewish fundamentalist enemies uh, who would try to sabotage the peace process. Of course, that's exactly what did happen. I don't think it was only because Rabin was assassinated that Oslo failed, but it was the best chance. I'd say it had about a 20% chance of success. But it did not succeed, and that's not the world we're living in. We're living in a world in which Oslo failed. We're living in a world uh, in which people who in 1983, the best informed Israelis, the journalists, the professors, the activists, I can in my book, I quote them extensively, showing that in 1982 and 83, they were saying a few more months and there will no longer be a possibility of Israel ever leaving the West Bank. That was in 1983, before before multiple right wing governments, when there were only about 25,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank. There are now, as I said, 700,000. So 40 years after that. In the spring of 2013, after the point of no return had been discussed and passed for 40 years, the American Secretary of State, John Kerry, said, I believe the window for a two-state solution is shutting. I think we have some period of time, a year and a half to two years, or it's over. He said that in 2013, and President Obama allowed him uh, to try I wrote an article in the New York Times uh, that was uh, vilified, but also celebrated. We said this is a complete dead end, and it's a fool's errand. It will never succeed. Well, what's interesting is that when it did fail two years later, John Kerry did not go back and said, okay, now we don't pursue the two-state solution anymore. Now let's do something else. No, he's continued to advocate the two-state solution because it is politically so difficult to turn against what a majority of Jews in Israel and in the United States would like, or a majority of Israel supporters, which is to pretend that there's this cozy democratic Jewish state that's not an apartheid state, that maybe it's blemished now, but in the future it'll be okay, but you can't give up the two-state solution, even if you know it's impossible. And that's where we are today, where progressives even, many progressives in Congress, get away from having to say anything intelligent or important about the Arab-Israeli conflict by saying, well, I'm for the two-state solution, don't criticize me. When they know that there's no hope for it, but they also know that most people don't know that. So it seems like a good liberal place to be, and they won't get punished for it the way they used to when I first started talking about the two-state solution. It's interesting because uh, you had mentioned uh, being vilified for, for promoting the two-state solution many years ago, even being called a Nazi. Uh, now it's like almost uh, reverse, where it's uh, if you're saying that you know one state is is the only reality left, uh, now that scene is is the thing to vilify. It's not almost. Uh, it's exactly what has happened. Uh, I I spoke at a conference in Canada about seven eight years ago. And the press there exactly called me uh, an anti-Semite because I was not supporting the two-state solution, which was, as you point out, so ironic given that, but that's that's the way things are when they're really politicized and people aren't analyzing things. But what I'm interested in is thinking forward. Once you give up the paradigm of the two-state solution, once you stop thinking that the only way forward is to end the occupation by Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza, you are liberated in a way that gives you hope for the future. Because occupations end in two ways, not just one way. The United States occupied the South uh, of after the Civil War. Israel occupied the Western Galilee after the 1948 war. They called it, we're occupying this. Those occupations ended through complete integration and equality of rights through the whole territory. That is the way this occupation will still end. It won't end through withdrawal. Well, once that's the case, then a lot of things that used to sound bad now are progressive. For example, giving uh, East Jerusalem Arabs, there are about 330,000 Arabs living in East Jerusalem. They're not Israeli citizens for the most part. 
but they can vote in Jerusalem elections. And those Jerusalem elections are very important. Well, the Palestinian Authority has forbidden them from voting because it would acknowledge or legitimize the occupation. But right now, exercising political rights would give them a city that they could actually live in and establish the kind of uh, political precedent that shows that Jews and Arabs can work together toward progress, uh, toward equality of opportunity. Uh, there are many other areas. People used to worry so much about one more settlement there, one more settlement there, 10 more settlers there. Who cares anymore? The only reason to worry about that is if you think that the West Israel would be able to leave from the West Bank at some time in the future, but they're not. So more settlers in the West Bank just means fewer in the Negev or in the in the Galilee. Uh, used to be that we worry, oh, is the United States finally going to follow its interests and broker a true peace and be an honest mediator, put some pressure on the Israelis? Well, the United States is never going to do that because there's no political basis in Israel for for accepting such a deal and the, no political basis in the United States for confronting Israel on something that there's no political basis in Israel for doing. So in that context, uh, it only is a distraction to put energy into trying to get American diplomacy that works. It's not going to come better off focus on actually what President Biden uh, said at the beginning of his term. He said something that not everyone has appreciated how revolutionary it is. We saw him go to Israel and Palestine and do nothing. And he can't do anything. There's nothing to be done in the way of pushing forward toward a two-state solution. But he did say at the beginning of his presidency that the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, and democracy. Well, the only way they're going to do that is in a, the single state. The question is, what does it take to get a state to democratize when it's filled with a population that has been excluded, has been feared, even hated? There are ways that countries do democratize. The United States became a multi, a flawed, but multicultural, multiracial society after 150 years of struggle. We became a multi-gender political society after uh, centuries of the exclusion of all but the male gender. This is typical time frame for how political societies democratize under these circumstances. So we have to stop thinking that a solution to this problem is going to come next month, next year, in two years, in five years. The change that's important is in a 50 to 100 year time frame. So in terms of um, this idea of, of a one state uh, sort of solution, you know, I, I guess there's always this pushback that, oh, that, that would mean there, there wouldn't be Israel wouldn't be a Jewish state anymore. And, you know, what what if we are persecuted again? What if the Jewish people are persecuted again as they have been in the past? How do you respond to people who try to make that argument? Well, one thing I do is ask them, what do they mean exactly by a Jewish state? If they mean one animated by Jewish values, then an apartheid state where there's systematic discrimination against half the population certainly wouldn't be Jewish by any definition of values. If they mean a majority of people in the country are Jewish. Well, that's a question of demographics. This right now, a plurality of the people living between the river and the sea are Arabs, uh, because many of the people that, for some purposes, Israel counts as Jews, for other purposes, says that they are not Jews. There, there are about four hundred fifty thousand immigrants from the former Soviet Union who qualified to enter the country because they had a grandparent or an ex-spouse who was Jewish, but they themselves are not Jewish, and Israel doesn't officially recognize themselves as such. So you have, uh, now, if you mean by Jewish, a state that is wielded as a weapon in the hands of one population, the Jewish segment, against others, then it's true that it won't be a Jewish state if it democratizes, if that's what you mean by a Jewish state. Uh, I think that, and if uh, the second part of your question, which is, well, what a, don't the Jews need a state to defend themselves against their enemies? 
If that had been the primary reason, then they would get out of the West Bank. Then Israel would have left the West Bank and Gaza a long time ago. And they would still have an overwhelmingly Jewish state that they could keep without a lot of international pressure as a weapon in the hands of the Jews. But in fact, operating in that way, in my view, and I'm somebody who grew out of the Holocaust, was a consuming obsession with me, it puts Jews in more danger than without a state operating that way. After all, where in the world have more Jews died since World War II is because there were Jews in Israel. And the so to me, securing Jewish life in Israel and elsewhere requires a more just uh, solution, a more just and equitable way of interacting with others. Israel has nuclear weapons. There will be nuclear weapons in other countries in the hands of Iran and others. That place is not going to be a safe place for Jews or for anyone else unless there is some kind of a political system that doesn't is not based on systematic discrimination. So I want to get into the weeds a little bit here and talk about uh, the figure of uh, Jabotinsky and this logic of, of the iron wall, this sort yeah. of strategy. What is that for people that may be unfamiliar? OK, well, this is a fundamentally a fundamental and very interesting idea. So I mentioned Menachem Begin as representative of the what's called the revisionist or right wing expansionist maximalist Zionism. The founder of it was a man named Vladimir or Zev Jabotinsky. Begin modeled himself after Jabotinsky in some ways. In fact, if you listen to old Jabotinsky recordings, you can hear how Begin was literally imitating his voice. So Jabotinsky was a brilliant guy, and he wrote a lot. And one of the things he said that other people weren't willing to say publicly in the 1920s is this. All you Zionists who pretend that there's a, a, a nice little solution to the Arab problem are lying, and you know it. We want what the Arabs will never give us. We want the whole country to be in our hands, and they want what we would want if we were them, which is the whole country to be in our hands. What people, Jabotinsky said, aboriginal population, indigenous population, willingly gives up its country to people, foreign invaders. That's the language he used. So, of course, we're at war with them. And we're not going to be able, and those who think that they can negotiate now are vegetarians. They're unwilling to look truth in the face. The only way we can eventually get, but we have to have peace with the Arabs. In the long run, there has to be peace or we won't survive. So how can we do that? So there's only one solution, and that is not to negotiate now, but to build an iron wall and to, and to build such an amount of military superiority over the Arabs that every time they throw themselves against us, which they will, we would do the same thing if we were them, we will not just beat them, we will beat them horribly. And eventually, Jabotinsky said, as a result of us defending the Iron Wall, the Arab world will split. Even the Palestinians will split. Some will continue to be extremists and be diehard and reject any compromise us. But some will become pragmatic, willing to take half a loaf. And with them, we will negotiate. And we will negotiating the basics of equal national rights. He didn't rule out a binational state. He didn't rule out a state on both sides, uh, on one side of the Jordan for the Jews and the other side of the Jordan for the Arabs. He, he didn't rule out cantons. But he did rule out negotiations until the Arabs had split. Okay. That was a, now that idea actually was accepted by almost the entire Zionist movement. We don't have to. We, we can pretend that we're reaching out in peace to the Arabs, but we know they'll never accept it, and we wouldn't if we were them. By the way, Ehud Barak and many other contemporary Israeli leaders have said the same thing. Barak once said, "If he had been born a Palestinian Arab, he'd be in Hamas." So this is not a new idea. But what what happened? What is my analysis of this? What happened was that Jabotinsky's idea that Ben Gurion accepted was remarkably successful up to a point. The Iron Wall was built. The Arabs threw themselves against it in 1948, and in 1967, in 1970, and repeatedly they were beaten. As a result, in the early 70s, the Arabs divided into what was called the Acceptance Front, 
we accept the existence of Israel, but what its borders are, we're going to negotiate about, or we utterly reject Zionism. And that that's where things stopped following the Iron Wall plan. Because Jabotinsky, who said, look, the Palestinians are a normal people. And when normal people are thwarted, they, some of them moderate their, their demands. And so they will. And so the Palestinians did. But he forgot that the Jews are also a normal people. And when a normal people wins and wins and wins and wins over a population that it despises and fears, it starts to believe that it deserves even more. Israel, uh, uh, Jews always thought that they should rule the whole land. So when it was time to negotiate with the Arab pragmatists, Jews had moved, the Israeli political system had moved to the right as a normal people would do. And they no longer, and then pragmatism on the Arab side was depicted as a trickery, as a plan to eliminate Israel in phases. So that Jabotinsky's idea that you would be able to see the moderates on the Arab side and encourage them, instead Israel went out of its way to deport precisely the moderate leaders from the West Bank because they posed the greatest political threat, the moderates. That's what I mean by the flaw in the Iron Wall, that although the Iron Wall strategy worked up to a point, it failed when it expected Jews to compromise when they didn't have to uh, militarily. Something Shamir, Yitzhak Shamir and other hardline prime ministers would say, why should we negotiate now? What's burning? And if something was burning, during the Intifada or one of the wars, was how can we negotiate under fire? So the Iron Wall eventually produced a situation in Israel of expansion and de facto incorporation of the West Bank and Gaza. And that then transformed Israel because it's not just the settlements. And I want to emphasize this to your audience. It's not just the settlements that have changed. Israel has changed. For Americans, they can think of it this way. Israel used to be Connecticut. It used to be a progressive, even socialist country. Then it became Ohio. It became a purple country. But it is now Oklahoma. It is now Nebraska. It is now Idaho. And Idaho, it doesn't have to be that way over the long run. If Oklahoma had a population, let's say, of uh, millions of Native Americans, even that was as great as the white population there. If they did not have rights to vote now, how would you predict Oklahoma would look in 30 years? Well, that's the situation. Would it still be red? What happens as we sing in Israel, what we, the way women got their rights here in the United States is the people in control split and they fight among themselves, men against men, whites against whites. And eventually they see the people who have been excluded from politics as a way to win over their allies. So blacks are recruited and allowed to run because they can support one white candidate over another. Women are allowed to vote because they'll support one white candidate over another. We're, I, I think you've mentioned in, in relation to this, uh, the specific example of, I guess, George Wallace, right? Yes. Talk George a little Wallace, bit about that. Well, George Wallace is known to my generation as the man who stood in front of the uh, uh, university of the schoolhouse and said uh, in Alabama on behalf of segregation and swore that integration would never occur, never occur. And yet he won as uh, he became governor the fourth time in Alabama by kissing black babies, by recruiting blacks to vote for him. It was the only way he could win. Democracy is a strange thing. The one thing you know about it is that people will do anything to avoid losing. And we as Americans have seen that now. They will do anything, even ally themselves and create political opportunities for people that in the past they considered their worst enemies or their most hated or feared opponents. That's how we got a black president in the United States. That's how we got the Democratic Party moved from the party of Jim Crow to the party of Barack Obama and uh, uh, AOC. That, that's how, but history works that way over a long period of time. It means that people have to respond to their interests at the time, their political interests, 
and work toward equality, work toward non-discrimination and mutual respect for national rights that are non-exclusivist. If they just think about those things and don't let some kind of principle of, well, that's not good for the two-state solution, so uh, I won't do it. That's what stands in the way of progress. I'll give you one example, and that's called the demographic argument. The demographic, so-called demographic problem in Israel refers to what the left, the dovish side would say, and I have to say, I made this argument myself and I never felt completely comfortable making it. Shouldn't we Jews get out of the West Bank and Gaza, give it back to the Palestinians so we don't have to have so many Arabs living in our country? Otherwise, it'll become a non-Jewish country. The Arabs have such a high birth rate. So even though I don't like Arabs or I don't want them to have rights or I'm not driven by the moral imperative to, uh, to end the occupation, Jews, for their own interests, should get out of the West Bank. We shouldn't settle there because of the demographic argument. Well, when you that demographic argument, you could say, was progressive at a time when you thought the two-state solution could work. And therefore, you're saying, okay, I'm encouraging people to hate or fear or not be comfortable with Arabs, but only in order to get a, a Palestinian state living alongside of Israel. But now that you know that there's no possibility of such a state, Making the argument, the demographic argument, only carries water for the for the uh, prejudiced right. It appeals to biases which will keep Arabs from ever getting their political rights. Right now, you hear fewer and fewer left-wing Israelis making the demographic argument. Why? Because they need Arab votes to get into the Knesset. They can't ever get a, into a government anymore without a large Arab turnout. And now without even Arab parties in the government. We have the government now with an Arab party in it for the first time. So this is how countries change. This is how democratization takes place. And one of the key signs of it is the abandonment of the demographic argument. Used to be a progressive thing, not anymore. So one aspect of your book that I really found interesting was uh, I think you have some criticisms of this movement that has become popular uh, with segments of the American left and progressives uh, known as boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS. And I, I think you uh, see that as a little bit of a, a, of a distraction or that it distracts us from um, other issues. So could you speak to um, why you make that argument? Um, I'm sorry, I don't exactly make that argument in the book. Okay, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm sorry if I'm misinterpreting. I, I, I yeah. think you might. I I don't think it's a distraction. I personally am a member of the Middle East Studies Association. I've written an article published uh, online on why I voted for the BDS resolution at Mesa, and I have inside the Association for Israel Studies been a vociferous uh, opponent of the association's. Uh, a decision to withdraw from Mesa, to boycott Mesa. Now, I do, I don't go all the way down the line with all, everyone who supports BDS, because I also do, for example, promotional reviews for Israeli universities, not for all of them, but for those whose behavior I believe is in line with my values. Uh, so I don't. So what I like about the BDS movement is that it has actually allowed its supporters to decide what they're going to boycott and what they're not going to boycott, to be selective about it. And what that does is send us. It's it's not an. What I think maybe what you're picking up is it. The some people think the BDS movement is a way to cripple Israel economically, and bring it to her knees so that Israel will do. I don't know what. They don't have an actual plan. Uh, that's not the role that BDS has. It's not affecting Israel very much economically, but psychologically and morally, it is creating a sense of a pariahness, of isolation, of a threat of prosecution, which does put real limits on what Israel policies can be. And if you look, I've taught a seminar at Penn on the on comparative transnational boycotts, the boycott against uh, South Africa, the boycott against Britain over the treatment of Catholic workers in Northern Ireland, the boycott against Nestle's. These take decades to work out. 
and they and they don't work by economic uh, pressure, except at the very end in some cases. They usually work because of uh, changing the language and terminology and concepts associated with the conflict and what people can even imagine being uh, being something they could identify with. So I think it sends an important signal to Israel that it's okay. It's got the West Bank and Gaza. You caught both of those buses, but you're not going to be able to rule them with systematic discrimination. You're not going to be able to do that and be, uh, and be recognized or treated as a democracy. That's the message of BDS that I fully support. So uh, it sounds like you're saying that ultimately any kind of real solution uh, to the Israel-Palestine um, conflict is going to, we're going to be seeing uh, change happening over decades and it's going to be through uh, actions that lead to those changes. Uh, but what, what do you say to people? So, so for instance, uh, I was just talking to uh, someone in Gaza uh, the other day. And and for them, I guess they feel as if, you know, we need a solution right now. Like we can't be living under this occupation. So what, what do you tell uh, maybe Gazans or people in the West Bank that uh, feel like there needs something needs to happen as quickly right, as possible? Right. Well, first of all, in politics of this sort, protracted national struggles, there is no such thing as a solution in the sense that it happens and then we don't have an Arab-Israeli conflict anymore. No more, Khalas, we're done. No Palestinian-Israeli problem, no. We ended slavery in this country. Did that end the problem of race relations in America? We had a black president in the United States. Did that end the problem of race relations in America? No. Problems get traded for different problems. You don't get solutions. And what we're looking for is trading today's problems for better ones in the future. Now, Gazans, it's not easy to get our worst problem than the Gazans have. My attitude is once you take this long time frame, some things that two, traditional two-state paradigm people see as a problem are not. For example, the Abraham Accords. Oh, that's a sellout. They have cut the ground underneath the Palestinians. Well, from my point of view, they were never going to do anything anyway. And there is no two-state solution anyway. But if they get entangled with Israel, then eventually there'll be access that Gazans and West Bankers have to the resources of the Arab world. And, and Gaza is getting a lot of money from the Gulf. Israel would never allow that, except that Israel needs it. I say take advantage of all of those things. Celebrate that stuff. When I see, uh, when I see uh, an Islamic party actually a party that grew right out of the same plant as Hamas did, now in the Israeli government. And what does it say? So we accept Israel as a, as a Jewish state. Not that God said it should be a Jewish state, but it is. And now we have to live here in this state. Now, what does that mean in 30 or 40 years? Well, for one thing, it means they, that this population will benefit. There's an Arabic term, a Palestinian term called sumud. It means rootedness, steadfastness, that in the long run, what counts is that Gazans and West Bank Palestinians have to be able to stay where they are, live and prosper. And if that means not pursuing full political rights now because you're laying the groundwork for getting them later, that's what should be done. Solutions to practical problems are what are needed now. Uh, and in that way, I don't disagree with, a, with some of the pablum that comes out of Israeli policy circles now, which is to shrink the conflict, you know, make it so remove politics from it. I'm not totally uh, opposed to that because it will have the intention they have is to put the conflict into formaldehyde. So eventually they can forget about it. But from my point of view, the way politics works and my the theme of my book of unintended consequences, you know, the motto in the book, the epigram that my grandfather used to say in Yiddish, man tracht und God lacht, man plans and God laughs. Go ahead, plan you're going to shrink the conflict. May, but once you make it possible for 5 million Arabs to be living under Israeli rule in generations uh, of splits within Jewish society, those people will be integrated, even Gazans. But right now, it's too 
it's too far a bridge for Palestinians in Gaza to be worried about getting a vote in Israel. That will come to their children and grandchildren, but that's not what they should be struggling about now. There were just maybe one or two more questions I had. The the first was um, in terms of U.S. policy towards Israel, uh, I'm wondering how should U.S. policy, how should it be planned out in the future with regards to dealing with Israel and, and Palestine? Uh, I, I recently had a guest on a while back by the name of um, Zaha Hassan, who's a, a human rights attorney, and she wrote uh, a very interesting paper for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, where she argued for taking a, a human rights-centric uh, approach to Israel-Palestine and focusing more on ensuring that human rights are respected by both sides rather than looking at the, the two-state solution. Uh, but where do you think we should go? Should there be more of a focus on just the human rights right now? Or I agree with, with that position, but not to call it human rights. It's political rights. It should be equal rights, period. And uh, that's why I quoted President Biden's remark. Actually, uh, that what's important is equality in the United States. You know, in the United States, the word occupation and the occupation isn't doesn't mean what it means for a lot of other people. When Americans think of occupation, they think of the American occupation of Germany, the American occupation of Japan. Those were good things. We brought democracy to those places. But so so calling on Americans to end the Israeli occupation Although that might change now that the Russians are occupying Crimea and and uh, the Donbas, it might it's better in the United States to formulate a position based on struggling for equality. That uh, that we uh, we we would like to see it in Israel. We deserve, given how much a, a taxpayer money goes to Israel, uh, where e- the principle of political equality and social equality, racial equality, gender equality are all honored. And we should hammer that theme so that uh, if and then if Israel really policy said, well, we don't really count the West Bank as part of Israel uh, and uh, West Bankers don't deserve equality because someday they're not Israeli citizens. Well, why aren't they? The 700,000 Israelis who live in the West Bank are citizens and they get full citizen rights. People living on the other side of the street don't. Why not? It, that is a contradiction of the principle of, of political equality. When Israel gives its population figures and says that there's uh, 7 million Jews in the country, they are counting the Jews in the West Bank and Gaza. But when they count how many Arabs are in the country, they don't count the Arabs of the West Bank and Gaza. They only count the Arabs inside the Green Line. So this, these, so the United States and progressives should move away from raising the banner of the two-state solution and instead uh, argue that any solution, any uh, political architecture must be based on the principle of political equality. The two-state solution can be based on that, but that's that's unavailable. So it's it's silly to put all your eggs in that basket. But there are other solutions based on uh, on other formulas, whether it's a binational state or it's a multicultural state or it's cantons, uh, people talk about confederation. Most of that talk is camouflage for the two-state solution because the definition of a confederation is an agreement between two sovereign states. So it automatically, when you talk about a confederation, you're talking about a two-state solution first and then you have a confederation, and that's not going to happen. But I'm in in favor of talking about the values that we want the state to honor, not the architecture that implements those values. I also wanted to briefly talk a little bit about this issue of um, APAC or or the (laughs) Israel lobby. Uh, You deal with that in the book. Uh, How does your analysis of the Israel lobby compare to and maybe in other ways differ from uh, say, the, the famous Mersheimer and Walt arguments about the Israel lobby? Well, uh, I, I'll, I'll answer that question directly. But first, let me say that most of what's said about the, uh, the Israel lobby that does not agree with my argument is hogwash. Everyone knows, and I've been in the government, everyone knows that, that the main thing that has deflected American foreign policy on this issue is the 
domestic political consequences of straying too far for too long away from whatever the current Israeli government is saying. That's just the truth. And uh, uh, there's an enormous amount of effort to hide that truth, but it is the truth. Now, what's the, and on that, in that way, John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt, and I agree. But there's one thing, and I've talked to John and Steve about this, that, that we disagree on. They wrote the book as if, isn't it horrible that American interests are contradicted by something that a lobby wants the uh, American government to do? I mean, this is outrageous. American interest, American national interest is not being followed. How horrible. Well, my response is, tell me a foreign policy issue, John. Tell me a foreign policy issue, Steve, where the, you think the American national interest is being followed. It never is. It's always subject to domestic political conflict. That's, that's how American democracy works. So I don't expect any more out of it. For some reason, they expect that in this one area, American interests will prevail over domestic political considerations. It just so happens that in this context, the domestic political considerations are extremely focused in a, in a relatively uh, a single issue movement. I point out something that they don't point out, that there are two and only two issues that the United States and world affairs has been three to four standard deviations from the norm of the international community. Two, what are they? Well, one of them is the Israeli issue, where the United States votes with Israel and Samoa and Guatemala against the rest of the world on anything that dealing with settlements and so on. But there's one other issue, and that's Cuba, where we and Israel against the whole world vote to continue the boycott of Cuba, even though we're against the boycott of Israel. What explains this? Why should we take absolutely opposite positions on uh, one in favor of the boycott of a country, one against the favor of a boycott, when it, each of them runs against the international consensus. Because those are two issues where you have two crucial domestic political lobbies, the Cuban lobby in Florida and the Israel lobby in the United States, were much more powerful, but still. So that, that tells you all you really need to know about why we shouldn't depend on the United States to pull the rabbit of some solute, diplomatic solution out of the Arab-Israeli hat. So the last things I wanted to cover here were, do, do you think there is maybe a changing of the guard happening uh, with how we look at Israel-Palestine and and this issue of, I, I think there are people that are starting to question uh, the two-state solution. Most famously recently, uh, in addition to yourself, I, I think we've seen that coming from uh, Peter, Peter Beinert, who actually wrote a whole piece, I believe a year or so ago, saying he no longer really believes in the uh, two-state solution. Do you think we are seeing a sort of changing in the guard, at least among um, elements of, of the intelligentsia and people oh, who think about these things? Oh, oh yes. Uh, Peter, by the way, read my book before he wrote that article. So oh, really? We, That's we, great. Yes, we are definitely, definitely in the same trench. Uh, but abs absolutely, polls that have been done at the University of Maryland of experts on the Middle East show 70% or more of respondents say there is no possibility of a two-state solution. That's what the, now experts say that the politicians, of course, have to wait decades to say the truth. And for reasons I uh, adumbrated earlier. Uh, but even so, in Congress, even in the American Jewish community, Israel is no longer for most uh, non-Orthodox congregations a source of unity. Israel, as a topic, has to be avoided in order not to tear the synagogue apart. This is, uh, and, and that's not specifically about a one-state reality versus a two-state solution, but it shows how much change has been and is taking place. The last place we're going to see it, unfortunately, is in the in the expressions and the analyses embraced by politicians, which is why I was so pleased with President Biden's formulation. And it's a formulation he's used on more than one occasion. Uh, it's better than the Trump formulation, which oddly enough was, you know, one state, two state, whatever they want. 
That was one thing he said early in his presidency. And actually, that's better than swearing that you're going to uh, uh, make sacrifices for the two-state solution, because all that does is camouflage what I call silent apartheid, people who pretend that the two-state solution is available so that they can continue Israeli control without being held to account for its anti-democratic character. In closing here, what for you point blank is the like, what's the best piece of evidence you give to people when they say, well, why why can't we have a two-state solution? And also, in relation to the one-state reality, maybe just reiterate uh, why that could be hopeful, why there could be hope for the future. Okay. Uh, you can't have a, a two-state solution. Uh, no one who is even in favor of it and still actively pushing it has been able to come up with a depiction of a political process that would lead there. That used to be possible. I did it. Many people did it. First, we'll have a, uh, an election. The Labor Party will form a coalition with these parties. This part, They'll crack down on the vigilantes who will become violent. The United States will support them uh, with a little pressure. That, and, and you could make, uh, and, and meanwhile, the Palestinian Authority will, uh, or the Palestinians will get uh, enough of a vision of a real state that they will be able to control their extremists. You could you could spin out a story. Doesn't mean it was definitely going to happen, but you could at least spin out a story. But there is no one, no one who is now even telling a story about how that could happen, and because it would be embarrassing to try. So that's to me the best evidence is that there's no one who's even pretending that they have a way to get there. Uh, the, when you think about the one-state reality, I want you to think about the struggle. You know, when Abraham Lincoln led the country to a civil war in the United States, it was not for a multiracial democracy. He wanted his position was that that the that blacks should be back sent back to Africa. That was his view. That was his position. The unintended consequences of expansion and integration in the context of a democracy that operates for part of the population, ultimately unleashes political processes which integrate. They're centripetal political processes. That is not inevitable, but that is the way it usually happens in industrialized uh, countries. That's how gender equality was uh, pursued. That's how racial equality. And that is the... So when I look at Israel, it's even changing faster than I expected. Because much faster than I expected, you have an Arab political party in the government. And that means that it's with the Jews divided as evenly as they are politically, uh, not on the Palestinian issue anymore, but on other issues, that in the future, it may not be easy to form an Israeli political government without Arab participation. And that's that's an, uh, it was just, that's an amazing thing. That's progress. And it's the kind of progress we should honor. Real quick, too, because it, it just popped in my head to ask this. Is there a, a specific reason? I feel like you use the term one state reality um, instead of saying the one state solution. Is there a specific reason for that? Yes. What is a solution? A solution is a pretty picture that you like. Okay? Nobody likes what is in Israel today. There's not a single group that likes it or that will say it likes it. There are, there are the silent apartheidists that like being able to dominate Palestinians while saying they're waiting for Godot. They're waiting for the two-state solution, so don't blame me. To an extent, they like it, but nobody likes it officially, and I certainly don't like it. So it can't be a solution if it's not a pretty picture. But a pretty picture is not a solution either because you have to get a way to get there. Now, I used to have a way to get to a two-state solution, which to me is a pretty picture. Two nice states living next to each other. They've each got their issues and they cooperate. That's a pretty picture, but there's no way to get there. So it's no longer a solution. That's, when I, that's why I insist on not calling this a one-state solution. It's a one-state reality because it's not a pretty picture. The two-state solution is not a solution because although it's pretty, there's no way to get there. Well, Ian Lustig, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, and I really hope that everyone will check out the book Paradigm Lost 
from two-state solution to one-state reality. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ian Lustig and that you'll check out his book, Paradigm Lost, From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Should be getting some Patreon-exclusive content up before the end of the month. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. No nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.